How can you be part of a religious community that straight up denies Sometimes science it feels or like the church is trying to hold The church seems to be stuck in their ways when the rest of the Why are they so obsessed with keep trying to get answers, but they don't even know the questions we're asking. The church is the most vocal political voice against immigration. Some churches still don't want to claim that worship was the actual how can your story be good when the majority of people on the church seems to be stuck in their ways when the rest of the culture is How is that actually? It seems like so much of the church's concern is being a good anti-critical thinking, homophobic, too narrow, judgmental, disconnected from what is truly happening in the real world. The church needs therapy. Welcome to the newest episode of The Church Needs Therapy. And today... Our guest, our special guest is Rich Velotis, which is funny because before I was like, man, what is the right way to pronounce this dude's name? <laughs> and then I saw, I looked on YouTube and two people I saw both said it different <laughs> and it was both wrong when they interviewed you too. I've heard it all. Rich is a Brooklyn born led pastor of New Life Fellowship, a large multiracial church with more than 75 countries represented in Elmhurst, Queens. Rich holds an MDiv from Alliance Theological Seminary. He reads extremely widely. Um, he loves preaching and writing on contemplative spirituality, justice-related matters, and the art of preaching. He's been married to his wife, Rosie, since 2006, and they have two beautiful children, Karis and Nathan. How old are they now? 11 and six. Wow. 11 and six. I'm in the, I have a four-year-old and a two-year-old stage. <laughs> We're very different places. <laughs> oh, yes. And Rich's first book, The Deeply Formed Life, which we'll be talking a, a lot about today, is now available wherever books are sold. Rich, so grateful to have you here today, man. I appreciate it. Kevin, thanks for the uh, kind invitation and uh, look forward to a good conversation here. Yeah. Yeah. I want to I want to start with you introducing yourself to the people a bit more personally. Like if you zoom out a little bit, what are some of the bigger picture movements of your life, specifically when it comes to your relationship with the church that kind of help make sense of where you are today? Is that something you grew up with? You know, you evolve, you're part of different traditions over your life. Let's see some of those bigger picture movements. Yeah, you know, growing up, I, I was not a church growing. My family was not a church going family. My parents would send me to church from time to time with my grandparents who lived down the block uh, from me in Brooklyn. And it was a Latino, Spanish-speaking Latino Pentecostal church. And, uh, and so I would go there, hear some of the stories about Jesus. But by 12 years of age, stopped going, asked my parents, could I stop going? They mm -hmm. said yes. Um, and then found myself back in church. Um, as a 17 year old, I was dating a pastor's daughter of an assemblies of God church that got me back into church very quickly. Uh, that relationship ended. And as a 19 year old, I went to the church that my grandparents used to take me to, uh, and really at a time of great desperation and sadness and, um, walked in, they were having a revival service. This is 1999 of August of 1999 and walked in. Uh, typically they have 30 people in the church. There were about a hundred people there. Um, a guy got up to preach on Ezekiel 37. My parents walked into the church. 
maybe 10 minutes after I got there, the Lord had spoken to my father um, as wow. he was coming off of a hangover to basically say, go to church. <laughs> Did they know uh, and, you were in there? Did they know you were in there? I told them, I told gotcha. them, Hey, I'm going to church. And which I, they were like, all right. And uh, when I left, my father would say that he heard kind of like a, a interior voice that said, follow him. Wow. And so he, he went to church with his pajamas on and um, ran to the church with my mother. Uh, this preacher got up, preached from Ezekiel 37 about a valley of dry bones. 15 mm-hmm. family members became Christian that night. Wow. I, I was one of them. Uh, and that began really my experience with the church. Um, I, I started preaching right after I was organizing street services and preaching in Brooklyn and the projects of Brooklyn and um, uh, doing outreaches and such. Uh, and then uh, within that local congregation, I started leading uh, Bible studies for the English speaking portion of the church, which is picked about 12 people. Um, which was a very interesting thing because the pastor of the church, a man in his seventies would give me all the material to lead the Bible study <laughs> and uh, I'd make up my own stuff. So I was always bumping heads with the pastor uh, because of course I'm 19 years old. I know more than everyone, um, but that got me in some trouble. And at the same time, it was a great learning experience. Uh, went to college right after that uh, where I studied uh, theology and pastoral ministry, found myself in seminary, and then joining staff of a mega church in Brooklyn called the Brooklyn Tabernacle, uh, where I served as the college young adult pastor for three years there. And then as a 28 year old uh, came to new life fellowship church where I now serve as a lead pastor, but that was just to be part of the preaching team and lead their small group ministry. But two years after I got there, my predecessor, Pete Scazzaro, said he's going to be stepping down. We'd like you to uh, go through a process to become the next lead pastor. Uh, And so I got that news at around as a 32 year old uh, and as the 34 year old, uh, uh, you know, became the lead pastor at new life and been doing it for the last eight years. Uh, And so in terms of my relationship with the church, I mean, I have been very fortunate in my early years as a 19 year old, 20 year old, 21 year old to be exposed to, the global church. Um, and so uh, I was reading on um, beyond just evangelicalism and Pentecostalism. I was, I was reading about the global church and the history of the church. So um, I was very fortunate in my first four or five formative years to be exposed to the breadth and beauty of the church. And that's what I've tried to take forward ever since. Mm, yeah. Oh, I love that. You know, you started with the girl, then you get the assemblies of God. So the Holy Ghost is in you from there. You just take off after that. There it is. That's all I needed. (laughs) No, it's so cool. I mean, with so many people who, who have absolutely legitimate, you know, the traumatizing exclusion kind of tough things Mm -hmm. they're working through overcoming, trying to transcend for so long after like negative experience with the church. It's still amazing to hear like, man, there's been some great communities who have all like, obviously every church is imperfect, but who have all given me such gifts that have prepared me. I just love hearing that. Yeah, so cool. it, it is interesting. I do, I, my heart grieves for people who are in kind of deconstruction phases and uh, phases of resentment and hurt. Um, but uh, truth be told, I, I don't have any of that. I'm very fortunate. 
uh, all of my experiences, I mean, there've been challenges and such, but I've, it's never gotten to a point where I have questioned the church. Uh, like, is this a viable uh, solution for the problems of the world? Um, I've been incredibly fortunate to have mentors and communities that have really stirred me uh, and empowered me for, you know, the work that I'm doing. Yeah. Yeah. And it's an interesting thing too, because my experience, like I didn't grow up in the church either and had a unique journey to get to where I am. So I've only been a part, like after when I was 20, the first time I was really at a church, I've only really been a part of like two or three churches really, Mm -hmm. you know, and then I was never on staff anywhere before we started Imagine, you know, which is hilarious, you know? Yeah. Because I was like doing different things. Like I thought I was going to stay in the academy. I had a whole different kind of, you know, plan that I was going to do. But because of the way I grew up and because I've had positive experiences, I'm like, I've never felt so ideologically tied to one way of doing things. I've also never had like, there's a gift that, that comes with leading from not having so much baggage from the institution, from the community. You know what I'm saying? You can still understand it. You're inevitably going to guide people through it, but you're like, I'm not, you know, having to work out so much of that, like how the differentiating aspect of that, what was good, what was real, what was just the culture. And that's such a huge thing. So when kids, but it's also interesting because now like without that, but your kids do like my kids are in, you know, yeah my my story was like i didn't know the church and that's like well that's what you know that's all my kids know (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah let's um let's jump in the book before the any content in the book the deeply formed life you know most creative endeavors they have an engine there's like a source a catalyst a spark you know like sometimes you could be watching a movie and right at that specific time as a pastor because you know you're always like pulling there's a million sermons that are coming to you all the time teachings books you hear one line from a movie you're like that's a sermon like it just gives you the engine you're like that did something to me and now it gave me that what was Mm -hmm. you know the engine the spark the thing beneath it where you're like man like i want to show people what you know what a deeply formed life is like what is like the pain what is the energy the, the inspiration beneath that for you know, part of, it's a great question. I, I think there are probably two sources of that. One being um, the pastoral context I found myself in and what I wanted to do with the people I'm leading. Uh, and two, there was, there was this one verse in Galatians that became a really um, – a verse I centered a lot of my thinking and preaching around where Paul writes to this church uh, that he's in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in them. And so I I remember reading that a few years ago and I was just so stirred by that. Like this guy is agonizing over one singular um, idea. He wants Christ formed in his people. And I just started journaling and writing about it and contemplating it. And, and so that was kind of the, the, the Bible verse, that passage that came alive in me, Galatians 4, 19. Uh, uh, but then from a pastoral perspective, I realized the, the five values that I write about in the deeply formed life flow out of our local congregation. Mm. So these are not some arbitrary values that I 
I thought would be work nice together in a book. These are values that have held our church together for many years. And so um, part of it was pragmatic. I wanted people to grasp these values um, in, a, in a way that was deeper than what they were going to get on a Sunday morning or in a class. I got, I got way too many people asking me, what do you mean when you say racial reconciliation? What do you mean about contemplative spirituality? What do you mean about uh, interior examination and emotional health? So I just thought, man, what if I were to create something for the congregation, much like Eugene Peterson, when Eugene Peterson translated the message Bible, it, he just, it didn't come out of one morning where he said, you know what, I'm going to translate the message, the Bible and do the message. It started based on Bible studies. And he wanted his people to understand Paul's writings in Galatians and, and Ephesians. And so he wanted to give accessible language for his people. For me, the book came out of that level of pastoral concern. I want the people that God has entrusted me with to grasp these values deeply. Um, and so uh, on one end, it was that Bible verse that I want Christ to be formed in people. And it was as well this pastoral concern. But as I was writing it, I also realized what I am attempting to do, and it's quite ambitious, is I am attempting to offer an ambitious reframing of spiritual formation for this generation. And uh, that can sound <laughs> pretty ambitious and getting ahead of myself here, but I just realized most of the formation books that I read are not um, holding together these facets of faith that I'm writing about. There's often formational compartmentalization. And so I want to resist formational compartmentalization and say, no, we can talk about contemplative life and justice. We can talk about race and sexuality. We can talk about the interior life and being missionally engaged in the world. I want to hold these things together. So as I'm writing, I'm thinking, this is more than just our congregation. I think, I believe I'm trying to offer a reframing of spiritual formation for this generation. Absolutely. Now that's so good. And that makes so much sense of why those five, you mm -hmm. know, why those five help hold together a more holistic space, a more holistic path of, and I've never, you know, that phrase, the formational compartmentalization, that's how, you know, he's a preacher right there. Cause a phrase is like that today, people, we are here to talk about formational <laughs> compartment, <laughs> but it's good. Those five, you know, it, when you say that it makes so much sense, because I could see the compartmentalization of, oh, let's just talk about contemplation and spiritual practices. Yeah. And then other practitioners who are more action oriented are like, it's just the work of justice and yeah. sexuality almost feels like a complete other thing. Mm -hmm. when we talk about holding together action and contemplation. So now that you say that, I think that's such a, it's an audacious claim to make, but that's what we got to do when you care and you love and you have the vision. Like I don't, and I don't say that in a negative way at all. That's a great thing when you talk about the reframing of it. And I think the way you say that makes so much sense, you know, so you have those five values and the first one we're talking about contemplative practices, mm -hmm. right? The rhythm of that. And you have this quote, you say, as long as we remain enslaved to a culture of speed, superficiality, and distraction, we will not be the people God longs for us to be. Why can we not be the people God longs for us to be with speed, superficiality, and distraction? Yeah, in short, 
um, because we were not made for that kind of life. Mm. Um, we were made for a life of rhythm. We were made for a life uh, holding together the interplay of work and rest. Um, uh, you know, when you look at the life of Jesus himself, I mean, he's, he's our model, you know, he's, he, he's, he's the one who's, who's showing us the path and in him, you see him pulling away multiple times to be with the father multiple times after intensely and intense, uh, ministry moments, he's stepping away. Let's, let's, let's cross the side, go to the other side of the lake there. We need to get alone. Uh, and here, here he is, a son of the living God, uh, recognizing his limits, recognizing the pace that's often violent, that can do damage to his soul, and he pulls away. And it's, it's fascinating that, um, and very painful, I would say as well, that there are always other people who need healing in the context of the Gospels, and Jesus is like, all right, we got to go now. Um, I imagine like the mother who needed their child healed and Jesus is like, I have to go. It's a painful reality. At the same time, he shows us if we don't pull away and, and live by a different rhythm, we're going to be sucked into the vortex of nonstop activity, which is going to significantly impair the work we're trying to do. So contemplative rhythms is it's not trying to pit action or, or to, or to limit action or say the work that we're doing is not good. But what we're essentially saying is, are we doing it from a, a place of depth? Are we doing it from a place of significant rest? Are we working from a place of rest? Uh, so that's what I'm trying to explore. And, and moreover, I mean, for me, the reason why contemplative rhythms is the first value of the book is because uh, it's in those spaces where we're connecting and communing with God and offering to the world what we've received from God. So Acts 3, you know, silver and gold I do not have, but what I have I do give you in the name of Jesus, get up. Um, you know, how many of us can actually say, um, what I do have I give you? You can only give what you possess. And so contemplative rhythms is essentially saying, how can we live from a centered, abiding, John 15, uh, place in God out of which we offer, um, you know, our mission and such to the world. So that's why I begin with contemplative rhythms. Yeah, that's so good. That's, there's a difference and the, and it can be good things objectively for what they are, but there's a difference between doing things from a place of compulsion and a place of compassion. Yeah. Absolutely. And the, the frightening thing is people might not even know the difference, um, but uh, we do. And God knows, um, which is why those rhythms are uh, incredibly important for sustainability yeah. and depth of life. Yeah. Sometimes on this podcast, I like to give people a little glimpse behind the curtain of uh, the life of pastors. Because pastoring, as I assume you know, is a very unique thing. Mm -hmm. It's not, has nothing to do with value, doesn't make any pastor better or more special. It's just a unique in terms of what it is, what's required. Oftentimes I tell people, pastoring, leading a church, church planning, you take some of the hardest elements from some of the hardest endeavors 
and you bring them together in this like indistinguishable sort of cluster, you know, not of a situation. Like yeah. you, you're, you're, you're putting yourself on a trajectory to not only once in a while face things, but to consistently face things most people use their energy trying to avoid at all times, yeah. right? It's a crazy thing, you know? <laughs> Absolutely. Now, with that said, the little glimpse behind the curtain, when you talk about, we're talking about contemplative rhythms, resisting cultures of distraction, speed, mm -hmm. Jesus, Jesus himself pulling away, right? Yeah. Saying no, embracing limits, going to a space of, rest, presence, simply being, et cetera. I'm asking you this question. You obviously probably know a lot of pastors. You have a million stories. What specific, not just for pastors and leaders, what is so hard for pastors and leaders to actually do that? And I, I would also say this even more specifically, what does a pastor have to face and feel if they actually allow themselves to stop and rest and just be. Yeah. I, I mean, one of the reasons it's so hard, this is not, I, I mean, pastors are, um, have these unique pressures as you mentioned, mm. but this is part of the larger human story. Mm. Um, it, we, I mean, we find this in, in, in the Exodus in the, in the giving of the commandments in, in the fourth commandment of remember the Sabbath. There was a reason why that is, the commandment with the most amount of detail uh, to it. Uh, you know, don't commit murder. All right, got that. Uh, remember the Sabbath. And then here's a whole, a whole paragraph. Uh, and many, um, you know, Hebrew scholars would say, why? Because that is the linchpin of them all. That if you mess up the Sabbath, you're probably gonna, you're you're gonna be tired. And what happens when you're tired? You get angry. You start killing people. Uh, you're tired. You're fatigued. You find yourself in very vulnerable positions. And next thing you know, you're making compromising decisions with your body. Um, I mean, so uh, so so much of this we're, we're hardwired. Uh, too often produced to perform. Thomas Merton said that the greatest enemy of the spiritual life is efficiency. Uh, and so, I mean, I think we've bought into that. Part of that is the American uh, ideologies that are behind this of production and performance that, you know, uh, you know, of influence, make a name for yourself. So there's all, then there's the, the, the more interior, um, family of origin scripts that are live inside of us. Uh, you know, unless you do this, you're nothing. Uh, messages that have been that are coursing through our veins from um, childhood trauma and such. So why is it hard? I, I mean, it, it's hard. Number one, I don't know if we have a vision for that kind of sustainable life. Um, we've become addicted to our work. Uh, we believe we are, you know, Rene Descartes said, I think before I am, our thing is I work, therefore I am. Uh, and so, I, you know, so much of it has to do with theology. So much of it has to do with family of origin. So much of it has to do with cultural pressures, um, institutional pressures. Uh, so it's, it's a multifaceted um, problem before us um, as to why people have a hard time stopping. Um, and so, I, I mean, I talk to pastors on a regular basis who have a very difficult time stopping, and so much of it is rooted in their identity. Um, who am I apart from the work that I do? 
Um, so, I mean, th- but those are some of the reasons that make it so very difficult to actually have these kinds of rhythms to stop. Yeah. Yeah. I know that's such a, a clear picture of why the environment, both in the country as a whole and the culture of the church, and we can keep zooming in, you know, what, like, yeah, the, the atmosphere is completely leveraged against us being able to do that. Yeah. Say how hard it yeah. is. And I asked the question about like, what does a leader have to face and feel mm-hmm. about that issue of identity? Because yeah. if I'm addicted to work, right? It's like, I always feel like people have this like justification mixtape going on in their heads where at the end of every day, we're unconsciously convincing ourselves why we did enough to justify, it's weird to say, but our existence. Like now that I did all that, I I have six meetings, four things. All right, now I can chill a little bit at the end of the night and not feel guilty or feel feel whatever it is. And I asked the facing and feeling because for a, for people, for a leader to stop and just rest, the facing and feeling, it's almost like the voices, whether it's the scripts, the stories, the narratives, what I'm supposed to be doing is all hitting me. And it's, it can mm-hmm. be so uncomfortable for a person to just stop. It's like, whoa, all right, I'll just, what do I know how to do? Just keep going. Yeah. And, and what that called is uh, self-soothing, uh, which is, uh, you know, an expression of addictive behavior. Um, you know, addicts are, are what, what makes addicts addicts is you know, they're trying to um, soothe the pain they don't want to confront. Uh, and so uh, sometimes it's reflected in drugs, sometimes it's reflect, reflected in uh, sexual addiction, sometimes it's reflected in good ministry work. Uh, and so as my predecessor <laughs> would say, um, we often use God to run from God. Absolutely. And as I add, you know, we often use God to run from ourselves mm-hmm. uh, and all in the name of Jesus. But what we're doing really is we're attempting to soothe the angst, the existential dread, uh, the anxiety that's coursing through us because we don't really know who we are apart from our work. Mm. Yeah, I was, I have on my notes, I wanted to talk about a lot of the things you said about race after this, but some of what you're saying right now goes directly into one of the other five values is the interior examination. Yeah. And those are to me such important things for, for followers of Jesus as a whole, especially for leaders as well as you can use God to avoid God in yourself. You can use religion as a way of avoiding reality. And Mm -hmm. those are, but that's a fascinating thing because it's so hard to see, name, recognize, and be honest about the ways in which we do that. Yeah. Because you know, you're just doing it. And the more young leaders, young pastors do that, or people in the church who are giving, they will get rewarded. Like there are entire church cultures and systems that reward the people who are willing to keep doing that. Well, yeah. You oh, know? yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> I've been a part of ministries and churches where to do good work is the biggest problem before you because you're just going to get more opportunities to do it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then you find yourself going down this slippery slope of, I can't stop. Why? Because I've done so much good work. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, the, which is why I would say in passing that when I became a pastor at new life fellowship during the interview process, 
Pete Scazzaro, who was the lead pastor at the time, said, Rich, the only way you'll get fired is if you don't keep the Sabbath. Mm-hmm. And I was like, that's very strange. <laughs> and his response was, if you don't keep the Sabbath, you won't have the kind of life with God to sustain the work you're doing for God. Mm-hmm. And for me, that was a really significant paradigm shift uh, that I offer to new pastors on our staff as well. Uh, but that goes against everything within evangelicalism. It goes against everything within uh, the Christian industrial complex uh, and what it means to uh, pipe out content and, and make progress in our leadership. Um, but that is the way f- to a deep and sustainable life in God. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there have been moments with my wife and I pastoring where let's say these younger kids, like I'm 30 and to me, anybody below 30 is just a kid. Yeah. You know? so it could be 29. I don't know. But, you know, they're probably like early twenties and these kids have had some experience in church, you know, yeah. the ones that pastor. I can think of a, sp- a specific couple kids. And when they come to the church, I immediately have this sense of if this was the kind of environment that did that, these are the kinds of kids you could just run to the ground, you know, cause they mm-hmm. have so much to give They're You get along with them. They're fun to have around. They can just keep going. And what I've realized over the years and just like Pete did for you and obviously what I'm sure you do for so many is I, I can see that path for them. But also if I start introducing them to the interior examination, if I start leading them down this path of their own transformation as the priority, I'm like, no one's ever given them the space to just receive grace. No one's ever told Mm -hmm. them just come here for a year and just be or whatever. I'm like, it's funny because there's less they can do to build my thing. Yeah. But it's actually the very thing that might give them the freedom to have joy in 20 years and to love their wife yep. well, and to not be so neurotic and kind of like you're, you're, you're cutting, you're giving them a different path away from that destruction later on. Yeah. Which is you the know? greatest mark of a good legacy, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Uh, not that someone has helped me build my thing, uh, but that 20, 30, 40 years from now, they're joyfully uh, uh, serving Christ and the church and leading others I, and they're going to look back and say, the reason I'm here is because that person uh, said it's okay to rest and have Sabbath mm-hmm. and, and lead from a place of great joy and not from a place of workaholism. I mean, that's, mm-hmm. that's a testament to a great legacy. Yeah, yeah. Because you brought up the, or you used the term Christian industrial complex, you know, I'm in this interesting place right now where... I just finished my first book and I'm just kind of doing some of the hustling work of publishing and talking to agents and kind of doing all that, you know, and it, it was interesting. There was just a timeliness of a conversation I had with AJ last year where it just like opened up this space where I was like, and like, I just started writing right after, you know, it was like this really cool thing, just the way it worked. Yeah. And I have this chapter in my book called social ladders, vicarious value and career choices. And it's just some of my experiences in the Christian industrial complex, even though I've been very like, I'm, I'm on the most geographically isolated place on the planet, you know, where I am right now. I'm like very away from that. And because our church, like I'm so, me and my wife were so not in a place when we started to imagine of like, there was no antagonism towards the church. There wasn't an opposition. Like I know my critiques, I get all that, but I'm not like we're against that. And now we're doing this. I'm like, we're just out here doing this thing. You know, we always just had that kind of energy about us. 
Um, right. So, you know, I'm sort of stepping into those waters a bit more right now. And it's a fascinating thing. And I have this question right here. How do you respond to a young leader, pastor, practitioner who says, I have a desire to write or to have my voice be heard, you know, at a wider, more transcultural level. But it seems that a part of what is required to get there is to hustle and grind in a way that you're saying, Pastor Pete, is a reflection or expression of the problem, right? You know, the grinding, the, the superficiality, the fast. And the person says, especially considering that most of the people who have the platforms they have, have burned out at least once in their life. What yeah. do you say to those? Because I think that's a tension for a lot of like people right now. You know, um, it's interesting. Part, part of the sobering kind of approach that I've had in writing and entering into the publishing world, um, a lot of behind the scenes conversations I had with my predecessor were really important. Mm. And I think what, what goes missing, for, especially for young leaders, is they don't have someone 20 years 30 years older than them to say, watch out for this. Now, um, my first book came out last year. Uh, I'll be 42 next week. Um, when I told my predecessor, Pete, that I was going to be writing a book, he sat me down and brought out his legal pad and not like the nine by 12, like the 11 by 17 legal pad, the long one. And he said, Rich, can we talk for an hour? And I'm thinking about what? About, about writing and publishing. And he scared the hell out of me. <laughs> this is what you are getting yourself into. Just I want you to do it with eyes wide open. And he talked about um, the need to feel like you always have to justify yourself and work nonstop and, and build a platform and, and do all those things. Uh, I, that talk for me, uh, you, you know, he talked about you're going to be tempted to use New Life Fellowship Church mm. as a means to an end to serve your book publishing endeavors. Um, you're going to be tempted to be speaking outside and doing a bunch of stuff outside your role as a pastor. Uh, and you're and more than you serving the local congregation that God has entrusted to you. Mm. He listed a whole bunch of things there. And first of all, I was so angry when he said it to me. I was like, man, I want support, man. I want encouragement from you. I don't want to. Tell uh, me I can do uh, it. Tell yeah. me. <laughs> I don't, I want to lecture, but I never forget for an hour. He's like, and this, and this is a problem and watch out for this and that. And then at the last, you know, couple of minutes, he, you know, taps me on the shoulder, goes, but you're going to do a great job, Rich. And then he walks out <laughs> of the room and I'm like, man, I, I, I want a little more than that. But I, I think having that person who was ahead of me and say, here's some of the temptations you're going to experience um, was was very meaningful to me. Um, at the same time, uh, for me, and, and so much of this has to do, Kevin, with, I, I think, our own life with God, uh, the community we have around us. You know, I have, right after our meeting here, I'm meeting with three 
pastor friends. I meet with them the first Wednesday of each month for 90 minutes to talk about the particular struggles, the particular questions, the puzzles, the angst that we're holding. I need a community where I can be brutally honest about what's going on in me. I need a life with God. I need uh, a, a, a seasonal therapist. I need a spiritual director. I need a lot of things in place to guard, help me guard against those temptations that are very real. Now, truth be told, I've been very intentional about um, getting word out about what I'm doing with my book. I have been very intentional about my social media strategy. At the same time, I've tried to set significant uh, just limits about, you know, what I'm trying to do. my, My job as a pastor comes first. I'm committed to my local congregation. Those are the people that are going to get the best from me. And I remember Pete even telling me when he wrote Emotionally Healthy Church in 2003, uh, and this is public information, um, it's ironic that he wrote Emotionally Healthy Church and then he was out so long that New Life was suffering because he, was, he wasn't home. Uh, and he would talk to me about that. Like, I wrote Emotionally Healthy Church and here my church is all going crazy. Um, and th- those are the temptations. So uh, I, I think, yes, work hard, uh, but I think every person needs um, a structure of support around them to keep them from going over uh, the cliff, so to speak. Yeah. Now, I'm so grateful for that response and the honesty there, because those are things most people don't have to think about in terms of the Christian industrial complex, the industry side of doing that. But oh. it's all a further glimpse into navigating with wisdom from a place of depth with God, whatever environments anybody's in when it comes to how do I work hard? How do I have vision? But also how do I do it with integrity and alignment? And how am I doing it from a place where I'm actually deeply connected and we're union with Christ and yeah. whatever the first things are first. So, yeah, that that's so good, man. I'm I'm that was that was that was great. Yeah. Um, one more thing with the interior part. It's a simple question, you know, with with the focus. If that's one of the five things, one of the values. What does interior examination, naming shadow elements, and self awareness have to do with God and spiritual growth? Someone's like, I'm reading my Bible. I'm f- my hands are up and I'm flying with Jesus. You know, whenever the music comes on rich and now you're talking about it, what is happening here? <laughs> yeah. You know, my, my simple response, and I get that question a lot from people within our congregation and outside of it. So it's not like everyone in our congregation loves this stuff. Uh, it's like, why are you asking me to do this again? Uh, <laughs> and um, my simple response is this. I believe that Jesus Christ wants to touch and transform every facet of human existence. Mm -hmm. And the interior life is part of that existence. Um, You know, James Baldwin would say that the interior life is a very real life. And um, it's often the case that we live so disconnected from what's happening within us that it leads to all kinds of uh, problems in our in our world. So for me, number one, it comes from a theological conviction that Christ wants to transform every facet of our being and of our world. Um, but secondly, 
and this is also biblically rooted. I don't know if you can read the Bible, especially like the prayer book for the people of God in the Psalms, and not see the wave of interior integration in their life with God. You know, the, the, what Jesus would have grown up praying would be the Psalms. What the church and, you know, the people of Israel have been praying for centuries were the Psalms. And what the Psalms invites us into is expressing and searching what's going on within and lifting it up to God. Uh, and so for me, it's um, if we don't do this, we will find ourselves uh, and the world has found itself in significant problems. But uh, the, the, the theological thrust of this is uh, Christ wants to touch every aspect of human existence. And what we find within the scriptures are plenty of points of uh, interior integration in our worship of God. So uh, those are the two basic kind of ways that I try to explain people to people in my church who say, why are you asking me to, what am I mad about? Why am I sad about? What does this have to do with God? It has everything. I'm not, I'm not sad about anything. I'm not, you know. Right, exactly. <laughs> exactly. I'm not mad. Stop asking me if I'm mad about anything. You know, like, well, brother, you're about to cut my head off here. So it's mad about a lot, it seems. Well, that, that, that to me makes me think of someone saying, you know, the therapist is not here to make you depressed. The therapist is there to tell you that you're already depressed. Yeah, right. You didn't know it. You didn't but, know it. That was Tap and into, yeah. and that's something. Even with preaching and leading a congregation, you know, where you're not just talking about this in the book, but right, you have a concrete community where you're leading into these practices and these values are inevitably going to flow into everything you do. And I've kind of had this interesting observation over the my first few years pastoring. I said, "Oh, when I look at a lot of sermons, what I see is." there's a pretty strong emphasis on the why, like why something matters. You know, shame can get in the way of your life. Shame can keep you in hiding. Oh, that's the why. It's great. And here's yeah. the what. You can be free in Christ. You can do all those things. That's awesome. But then what's missing is the how. Yeah. I'm like, oh, that person's like, they, they, they have some clarity on the why. They're going nuts on the what because that's where they're going to bring it home, you know? Yep. But the how of like, Oh, well, in the end, I guess you just pray harder or try. It's like almost like you just try harder at doing Christian stuff when the how is much more of what you're saying here. Like the, like, it's like, here's the thing. And now let's talk about all of the things within you that are getting in the way of your capacity yeah. to know and experience that for yourself, you know? So yeah. with preaching and teaching and leading, do you, are there intentional ways where you, introduce people that integrate the examination. Oh yeah. 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 My, my hope in preaching is not information. It's formation and formation requires modeling. It requires nuance. It requires a space to experiment. So for example, in, in the sermons we preach, there's often times of, of silence before the sermon or silence after the sermon. Why? Because I believe that contemplative prayer and contempt and silence is critically important for the ongoing life that we have with God. So many people don't know how to do it. So I model it for them. All right, we're going to, we're going to now take three minutes. I mean, just two, uh, three weeks ago or so I preached a sermon and we ended with five minutes of silence. And I know some people thought they were going to die. Uh, five minutes <laughs> Yo, of silence. Somebody turn some music on, please. And there was no music. There was like, I, my, I told the worship pastor, you know, don't play the keys in the background. <laughs> we're going to be silent, you know. 
And in so doing, people are saying, number one, I can do it. It's been modeled for me. Uh, but people often need some practical handles. Now, that's the challenge of preaching, isn't it? The, the challenge of preaching is um, my task as a preacher is to be heavy on announcement. Something has happened and is happening in Jesus Christ. Pay attention. Uh, but if, if I'm announcing without giving helpful application, um, I'm going to uh, miss opportunities to help people actually live this out on Monday and Tuesday. On the other side of it, it, gets, it can very, be very easy for sermons to be overly pragmatic. And now there's a hundred things I have to do. And now I'm caught under the burden of all these points of application and I've missed the announcement. So for example, this Sunday I'm preaching on, we're doing 10 weeks on Romans 8 during Eastertide and Pentecost season. And my, series, my sermon this Sunday is Romans 8.1. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I'm going to, to announce amazing news. I'm going to let people know, uh, you know, they don't have to live with the condemnation. You know, Christ has made a way. At the same time, I reckon, I'm asking the question, how is it possible that people who believe this theologically still live with deep condemnation? How is this possible? And it's possible because, as what psychologists would say, there is this inner critic inside of us that debilitates our life, especially when failure comes or, or criticism comes from the outside. How, now, how do I help people to live condemnation-free lives, not from the outside in now, but from the inside out with this inner critic? So I'm going to spend some time this week announcing it, but I'm, at some point I have to really meet people where they are. And when you get crit criticized this week, how do you not go down a hole of self-condemnation and carry that? How do you live freely even in the midst of criticism? So uh, that's the hard work of preaching, but it is holding together announcement and application in a, in a well-proportioned way that leaves people with burdens lifted off their shoulders and equipped to carry this news into their day-to-day -day experience throughout the course of the week. Mm, yeah. Oh, that's so good. Um, I want to make sure I get you out of here because, you know, I can't get in the way of the structure that your <laughs> friends are a part of because then I would be getting in the way of Rich's ability to lead well. I cannot right. do that. It's the first time we've ever talked. I can't just, we can't yeah. start off by me doing that. That'd be right? part two. Yeah, that'd be part two. <laughs> um, so I'm going to, I had, I had, you know, this section when you, you talk about the other three values, by the way, for people listening, you know, for those who are interested in the book, which I recommend getting, so you can get, you know, you see a bigger picture, you see two of the values we're talking about further here. The other two are racial reconciliation, sexuality, and mission, which in five minutes, we're definitely not going to get to all three of those, not even one of them. So I'm going to skip over some of those questions. I'm just going to land with this. You know, there's this hope that comes from the story of the scriptures where there's this mysterious movement of the universe and all of creation towards unity and oneness and justice and the glory of God filling the earth, right? So there's this bigger picture cosmic story that grounds us and allows mm -hmm. us to keep doing what we do. How do you be a, how do you keep believing in people? How do you talk about justice, right? You have to be grounded in some serious hope to keep doing that kind of work, you know, which is so good. 
But on a more within that, there's also day to day practical family kids. You know, if you're a Knicks fan, that's not going to help you in the hope department. Oh, maybe a little bit. You know, they got they got. There's some glimmers right now. There are some glimmers right now. We gave you LA gave you Julius Randle a while ago just to give you a little bit of hope for the moment. We're very grateful. But with the last year leading a church, a congregation who you care about through this pandemic. When, mm-hmm. when the, the atmosphere we're in is such a unique, intense one right now, very important and very critical one as well. What, are, what is bringing you hope right now during this season, personally? I, you know, I mean, I don't want to be cliche here, um, but we just celebrated Easter. Mm. Um, my, my, my hope is in the truth that God is unrelentingly pursuing this world in love. I believe that with every fiber of my being. And so um, political turmoil, racial injustice, public health crisis, economic challenges, through all that, I truly believe that God is always moving towards the world in love and invites us to participate in that divine dance of love. So my hope, my, my hope is, you know, um, uh, Tomas Halik, he was this, uh, I believe he was from Czechoslovakia, a wonderful theologian. He writes about the difference between optimism and hope. Am I optimistic? I don't know if I am <laughs> about where things are going. Am I hopeful? Very much so. Because optimism is based on what human beings can control and where we're headed. Hope is based on what, what God has done for us and good doing on our behalf. And so where's my hope built? How have I been able to sustain the tsunami of vitriol and polarization? Because I believe, number one, that God is always moving the world moving towards the world in love. That's where my hope lies. But then secondly, I mean, my, my hope is that that love is radically available uh, to us. You, you know, it was, um, gosh, the Catholic theologian that is slipping my, uh, he's slipping my mind, right? The name of him right now. I was just writing about him, so I don't know why I'm, I'm missing this. But, but he said that the future of Christianity uh, uh, will essentially be based on mysticism. Uh, the, the future of Christianity will be either be mystics or nothing at all. People who have experienced something of God or it'll be nothing at all. And I believe that at the core of my being, the, to be a mystic is to recognize the radical availability of the presence of God. And I believe that that's what Christ is calling people into. So my hope is in the fact that Christ is moving towards the world in love and that this love is radically accessible uh, and that is the hope for the world. So there's crazy stuff going on in the world. I'm not optimistic, but I'm certainly hopeful uh, because it's all stemming from what God has done in Christ. So good. Yep. Cornell West, I cannot be an optimist, but I am a prisoner of hope. Yeah, it is. You know, yeah. Um, Rich, man, thank you again for, uh, for taking the time, man. It's so good. And uh, for people listening in, Rich Velotas, the deeply formed life the deeply formed life go round out the rest of this talk by going deeper into the two of the values we talked about by exploring the further three and as a person whose default personality 
has a lot of suspicion built into it. Just from this conversation, I think that is a book that not only is true based on the content, but it's true in the sense of what is being written is flowing out of the truth of the person who is writing it. So check that out. You will not be disappointed, Rich. Appreciate it so much, man. Have a good day. You'll be with the people. I got to hold the structure together, you know, when you got a lot. There you go. On, man. So, yeah, man, I appreciate your time. Thanks for the invitation.